glad to see all of you this evening. Let's stand in prayer. Our Lord, it is before thee that we come uh, to be taught, uh, to be led in the paths of truth and righteousness. How we praise thee that we have an infallible standard of faith and practice in thy holy scriptures. And we would bow before thee to be made wise according to thy word and not according to the standards of this world. We thank thee, our Lord, that thou hast given to us a holy desire, and we pray that thou would give to us uh, understanding, love, and obedience, faith, and trust in thee and thy word this evening. And thou would cleanse us of our sins, that, Lord, our, our own sins would in no way hinder our fellowship and communion with thee and thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So John chapter 17 uh, is the prayer of the Lord Jesus for his 11 disciples who are there in his presence when he is praying. But as we See as well in verse 20, this is a prayer for all who would believe through the word of the apostles. This is, he's praying for us, the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's not praying for a nameless, faceless group of humanity. He's praying for us, knowing us individually, knowing us uh, who would believe and trust in him, for whom he died. He's praying for, for us. We noted that he first prayed for the preservation of his disciples. And it wasn't a preservation from all ill, all afflictions, all trials, all temptations and sins. It wasn't a preservation as, as if to prevent all of those things from happening to us, but it was rather a preservation uh, from falling into and falling away from him by way of these temptations and sins. In fact, in verse 15, we read uh, that the Lord prayed thus, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, that is, the evil one. That God, uh, Christ prayed that his Father would keep us, guard us from the evil one, that we would not be overwhelmed, uh, that we would not be uh, taken away from the Lord God. Uh, as his children, that we would be preserved, that we would be kept, that we would persevere in the faith, that if we fall into sin, that we would be stirred up to repent and to renew uh, our love and obedience for him. That was the preservation that, that the Lord prayed for. And then next we have seen that the Lord Jesus prayed for the sanctification of his disciples, in John 17, 17, <clears throat> sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So the means 
by which Jesus says we would be sanctified is by means of his truth, uh, which again, that truth is found in Holy Scripture and is summarized for us uh, in faithful confessions and creeds. Uh, that truth we find in the Bible is summarized in faithful catechisms, covenants, directories. So again, we do not hold those uh, human writings in equal authority with Holy Scripture, but we do believe that they can uh, if they are faithful, summarize the teaching that's found in Holy Scripture. And that, uh, when it does, that we can learn from them, that we can use them as helps and aids uh, to our faith. And so the Lord Jesus prays, first for preservation, next for sanctification. We're looking at this evening and probably next uh, evening or the next Bible study, uh, the next one is unification. So preservation, sanctification, unification, and then finally, uh, the last item that Jesus prays for is glorification for his disciples. So we're going to be focusing this evening upon uh, unity. Uh, unity in truth and in love. So verse 20 Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus had already prayed for the unity of his 11 apostles that are gathered right there in his presence in verse 11, John 17, 11, where Jesus prays, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So that's specifically a prayer for his 11 uh, disciples, the apostles that are right there in the same uh, room or the same location as the Lord Jesus. He prays for their unity. But then he takes opportunity in his prayer to enlarge that, to incorporate all of those who would believe in Christ through the word of the apostles, whether it was the preached word during that generation who came to faith in Jesus Christ, or whether it's the written word that has formed our New Testament and uh, which would include us uh, in coming to faith in Jesus Christ through the, the Holy Scriptures. But this includes when he says, I pray, neither pray I for these alone, that is those apostles in the room there with him in, in that same area or location, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word. This is referring to the whole company of future believers that Jesus is praying for. All of the elect uh, that uh, have been chosen in Christ Jesus uh, before the world began, that he is praying uh, for them. Now, we're not to pray to uh, creatures. Uh, we're not to pray to uh, those who have departed from this life, who are in heaven, um, the spirits of just men made perfect. We're not to pray to angels. We're not to pray to any creatures. Um, we are only to pray to God. We only have one mediator, the, the Lord Jesus, through whom we pray. So we're not to pray to any creature, and um, we're not to pray on behalf of any uh, uh, persons who have departed this life and now uh, are in the next life. We're not to pray for them uh, because uh, we cannot make uh, greater the glory 
of those who are already in heaven. We can't make their glory greater uh, by our prayers. We're not going to add any glory to them by, by way of praying for them. Uh, neither can we lessen the suffering of those who are in hell by our praying uh, for them. So again, those who have departed this life, we are not to pray for, whether they're in heaven or whether they're in hell. Um, it's it's uh, not something that can possibly be altered, changed at all. But we can pray, as Jesus is praying, for those who are now living, or for those who, though not now living, shall live in the future. Even though we may not know them by name, we can, we can pray for a future generation uh, to come to Christ. We can pray for the nations uh, that will be turned unto Jesus Christ. We can pray for uh, Israel in the future where all Israel shall be saved. We can pray for those in the future uh, to come to Christ, to be sanctified, uh, to be uh, taught and to learn and to uh, glorify the Lord. We do not pray for those, uh, again, in the future, presently, as if without our prayers, uh, God's effectual calling upon those who will become Christians in the future would fail. In other words, we don't think that our prayers are not not to think that God's effectual calling and calling his own unto himself depends upon our prayers. Um, the future salvation of, of whomever God has chosen to save doesn't depend upon my prayer. Now, I have to be careful, and you need to be careful. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them. But that that praying for those to come to Christ, whether they are already living, say they're our children, say they're relatives, whatever it may be, it's not our prayers that save someone. It's, it's God that saves them. So why do we pray? Because God commands us to do so. That's one, you know, first important reason. God commands us to pray for uh, for. The saved. Remember, Paul prays in Romans 10 um, for Israel. He prays for that they would be saved. The Jews would be saved, um, and so God commands it. That's the first reason. But I think that the second reason, not because you know God is only going to save someone whom He's chosen from eternity to save, whether or not we pray for them. But rather, it involves us. It becomes a blessing to us. It builds our faith when we see that God uh, is saving people that we have prayed for, that he is drawing uh, those to Christ for whom we have prayed. Uh, It is, again, a means of grace that God uses in our lives to sanctify us, to grow our faith, to strengthen us as we pray for one another. You see, such prayers for others, it really uh, encourages us. Uh, It has the effect, again, of building us up, turns our eyes from the present to the, our only hope in Jesus Christ. 
So let us not think uh, that people's salvation, on the one hand, depends upon us. It depends upon God. But on the other hand, let us not think that our prayers are useless, worthless, because they are used by God to build us up, to strengthen us, uh, to um, embolden us. They are for, again, our edification and our growth, our prayers draw us unto Christ, uh, into communion with him. Here the Lord Jesus intercedes not only for great and eminent believers, uh, he's praying for all of those who would believe on him through the word of the apostles. He's praying for even we who are the weakest. Uh, he's praying for we who have fallen, we who sin, we who struggle. He's praying for us who have trusted in him. And so again, realize that the Lord Jesus doesn't simply pray for the apostles because um, he gave to them miracle working power and that they um, would go forth and uh, take that message uh, to, to the world. He's praying for us who are seeking to build our households and our families and to raise our children in, in the knowledge of Christ and seeking to have marriages that mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. He's praying for us, each one. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Let us also mark here how the word preached is mentioned as the means of bringing uh, people to faith in Jesus Christ. The word preached uh, in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, through the word of the apostles, whether it's the preached word or through uh, the word that's recorded in scripture. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, faith must believe in what God has revealed. If there isn't truth, if there is not something in whom to believe uh, and in something to believe that is faithful and that is true, then what is our faith based upon? Our faith is hopeless. Our, our, faith, our faith has no, uh, no stability. It has no reason uh, to be placed in something that is not true. It's a false uh, and misplaced faith. If, again, it's not placed in that one, the Lord himself, and what he has revealed to be true in his word. So that's why the word is so necessary to our faith. We must be believing in, in that which God has revealed. Uh, not simply what you know, I tell you or, or, or what somebody else tells you without any foundation in, in scriptural truth. Again, you're only to listen to me or to anyone else insofar as it accurately represents what God has taught in his word. Uh, otherwise, uh, again, my word is no better than the next person's word. So churches that place, for example, uh, churches that place the sacraments above the preach word. Churches that place their music 
above the preached word. Churches that place any other part of their service above God's word, God's preached word, uh, how can they have God's blessing? Because the sacraments without the preached word are meaningless. How are we to interpret what the sacraments mean without the preached word? The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the preached word go together because the sacraments are a visible gospel. They, in uh, these outward signs, show forth what the gospel teaches in these visible signs. Baptism, cleansing away of sin. Uh, the Lord's Supper, partaking of the body and blood of, of Christ uh, by way of our communion with him. Uh, again, without the preached word, uh, those are just empty signs. Those are just uh, empty symbols that don't mean anything um, without God telling us what they mean. Where do we find that? In the Bible and in the preached word. That's why we don't administer baptism to people privately but only in the congregation do we administer baptism where the word is also preached to the whole congregation. Likewise, other parts of a worship service where they become more important, like the singing, uh, churches sing for you know, longer period of time in a, in a service, you may sing for 30, 45 minutes and have a 15 or 20 minute sermon. Again, uh, how do we know uh, how to worship God? Is it simply our own innovation? Is it simply our own ideas that we just bring and say, well, this would be a good idea uh, uh, for worship? Or do we have, again, a standard, an infallible standard to tell us what we ought to bring to God in worship. What has he said he wants us to bring to him in worship? That's why, again, the word of God read and preached should be uh, supreme uh, in a worship service. It should be exalted um, because everything else basically falls by the wayside when the word of God becomes secondary and it, other things become primary. Verse 21, John 17, 21 says, Jesus continues his prayer, that they all may be one. And the all refers back to verse 20, all of those who would believe on Christ through the word of the apostles, that would include us, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. What was it that Jesus was praying for here on behalf of all those who would trust in him? by way of saving faith, that they all might be one, one. That oneness is, has two aspects to it. First of all, there's a oneness and unity in spiritual and mystical unity that flows from the union of all true believers with Jesus Christ, which that union that we have with Jesus Christ, every true believer is united to Jesus Christ. And that union that we have with Jesus Christ is a spiritual union. It's not something that we can observe and see 
you know, as if we, our arms, our bodies are connected visibly uh, to Jesus Christ. He's in heaven, we're here upon the earth. It's a mystical, it's a spiritual union that we have with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, that spiritual union with Jesus Christ is based upon the union that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father. Out of that, that union that the Father and Son have with one another proceeds uh, our union with Jesus Christ. Not that we have the same kind, that's an essential union between the Father and the Son as to their being, uh, as, as to the Father and Son being God. So that's an essential union. Uh, uh, there is no existence of God apart from that union between the, the Father and the Son. We exist uh, before we are united to Christ. We still have an existence. Though. So our union with Jesus Christ is by way of grace. It's not, it's not something that is uh, of our nature, is not essential to uh, our nature. We are born, we live, and many people never are united to Jesus Christ, and yet they have an existence, they live. So it's not, it's not in the same sense essential, but it is um, obviously necessary for salvation. It is essential to salvation to be united to Jesus Christ. And so, um, those, all those who are united to Jesus Christ by way of this spiritual union uh, are all united to one another spiritually. So again, this is the union we have with all believers, all true believers. Uh, not merely professing believers, but all who are truly united to Jesus Christ by faith. We do have a union with them all. Uh, and uh, a very close, obviously, a very close union uh, uh, in as much as that's based upon that union we all share with one another. Whether they're a part of our church or they're in another church, there is a union with all true believers. We call that again, um, the invisible church, uh, which is again spread throughout the whole world. Uh, the invisible church, uh, united together. Um, all of salvation is bound up together in our union with Christ. We are, according to the scripture, we're chosen in Christ, before the foundation of the world, we're redeemed in Christ, in union with him, we're justified in union with Christ, we're adopted uh, as his children, in union with Christ, we're sanctified in union with Christ, we're glorified in union with Christ. So all of our salvation is bound up together in being united, joined together spiritually with Jesus Christ. And that is what we find, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll read verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Six, this, this oneness, the spiritual union and unity of all true believers to one another, this transcends, this unity we're talking about, transcends all denominational uh, distinctions, uh, this spiritual unity. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Notice, now it turns to unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? 
because, in verses 4 through 6, there is one body, that is one church, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So this is, again, that spiritual unity that binds all true believers together as one. I said there are two aspects to this unity. So that's the first. Spiritual, sometimes again, uh, mystical is used uh, uh, interchangeably uh, with uh, spiritual means the same thing. But there is a second aspect of this unity for which I believe Jesus prays here as well. And that's for, he prays for a visible unity. A unity that can be seen. We can't see the spiritual unity that we have with all believers. We, it, it's, it's invisible. Uh, we can't see that with our natural eyes. But there is a visible unity that Jesus here prays for that can be seen. <clears throat> and this is the, the unity that he speaks of here when he says in verse 21 that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So this visible unity is something that the world can see. Okay, the spiritual, invisible, mystical unity, we can't see with our natural eyes, but we can observe and see the visible unity. This visible unity um, ought to mirror and reflect the unity that the Father and the Son have with one another. And the visible unity ought to reflect the spiritual unity that we have with all true believers in Christ. In other words, what is true of us spiritually should be for that reason also we should strive for that visibly outwardly that we would that it would be seen that spiritual unity that we have with all believers that it would be seen by even unbelievers that it would be evidenced even by unbelievers that there is a visible unity you see what happens so often in modern, uh, our modern ecclesiastical landscape is that people, many well-meaning um, Christians, they exalt the spiritual unity, which they should, but they exalt the spiritual unity to such a degree that they downplay the visible unity. I don't think that the Lord Jesus here is exalting the spiritual unity in such a way as to minimize the visible unity that we ought to show in Christ's visible church. It's easy to excuse uh, all of the de denominational barriers that divide true believers from one another in doctrine, worship, church government. However, Jesus did not minimize, as I said, our visible unity. He rather prayed for it. He prayed for it here. A visible unity that would bring the world to believe that the Father had sent the Son, to be Savior and King. That's the kind of visible unity that Jesus prayed for. 
You see, it's it's not when the visible church um, professes a multitude of contradictory opposing doctrines, practices, and worship forms of church government that the world sees the glory of Jesus Christ and is brought to believe in Jesus Christ. That's not unit, visible unity. That's uh, visible disunity. That's visible multiformity rather than uniformity. It's latitudinarian is another way of saying it. Uh, it's allowing and saying it's okay for all of the churches that profess to be Christian churches to disagree in doctrine and worship and church government. That's some way it seems in the present age to be perfectly acceptable. In fact, I think it's not even viewed as a weakness, it seems like, any longer. It's almost viewed as being a blessing that there are so many different churches believing so many different things. You can take your pick. You can take the one that you want, the one that feels good, that feels right to you. Again, that's not what the Lord is praying for here. He's praying that they would be one and not merely spiritually one, but visibly one. The Apostle Paul teaches us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that is, with regard to the truth, that you all speak the same thing with regard to the truth, and that there be no divisions among you. Now, when he says no divisions, he's not just talking about, you know, uh, personal conflicts. That certainly would be involved in this, but he's not just talking about personal conflicts, that there not be any divisions. He's talking about divisions due to doctrine, worship, church government, there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's God's will. That's what Christ is praying for here. That type of agreement in the truth, a oneness in the truth, visibly. Let me illustrate again the visible oneness uh, within the church and how that visible oneness, Jesus says, would be the means by which the world would come to believe that the Father has sent the Son by way of changing the unity from the church to the family. Okay, let's talk about the family for a moment. When there are all manner of conflicts in doctrine, worship, government, all manner of disagreements in, in other areas within the home, is that the, uh, the kind of home that is more likely or less likely to draw other families to Jesus Christ? Well, if we can see it so obvious that, yeah, I can see that if I personally am not following the truth of Christ, uh, if I'm not following the practice that Christ has laid out, that that's not going to truly draw people to Christ. And I can see that in the family as well, that if you know husbands and wives uh, and the children uh, as well are all divided over the truth and over uh, that which God has revealed to us in his word by way of doctrine, worship, practice, you know, uh, what he has given to us, that that's not going to be a good testimony 
and drawing people to Christ. I, you know, we, that's fairly obvious. But why don't we make the same association when we begin talking about the church? Why do we say, well, it's perfectly acceptable for the church uh, to act like uh, the family that we, or, uh, you know, to act contrary to what we just said the family shouldn't do? Why is it okay for the church to do the same thing? It's not acceptable to the Lord. That's not his will. And it's not going to have the impact of drawing the world, which again, that's what we're, that's what the Lord is going to do in the future. He's going to draw the world to himself. All Israel will be saved. Uh, the fullness of the Gentile nations will come into the visible church. But that is going to be again realized by way of the Spirit of God using the gospel but also by way of that blessed unity. He's going to bring us into the same um, olive tree. He's going to, uh, the knowledge of God uh, will uh, fill the earth as the waters cover the sea and not different views of the knowledge of God, but God's knowledge, his doctrine, his worship. There'll be a, a uniformity. Uh, throughout the world uh, with regard to these matters that will, again, have the effect, the power of drawing the world unto the Lord Jesus when they see that unity in doctrine and in brotherly love for one another. This is not a unity that we're talking about right now that is built upon removing all truth that offends. Uh, that's not biblical unity when we have to remove the truth simply because it's offensive. And then, so we remove that truth because it offends that group of people, we remove that truth because it, it offends that group of people, and we finally get down to the lowest possible common denominator. Uh, that's not the kind of unity uh, that the Lord speaks of. Um, this is a unity in the truth and in the love of Jesus Christ that the Lord Jesus is praying for. Both truth that is doctrine, worship, government of the church, the commandments of God, the truth, and brotherly love are absolutely necessary together. It's not one or the other. It's not pick and choose uh, which one you want. For truth that's without brotherly love will simply issue forth in arrogance, in self-righteousness, uh, in producing scholars and intellectuals that are uh, perhaps willing to defend theological issues but have little or no compassion, humility, forgiveness, and do not show love and mercy. But if you go the other way, love without truth, that will simply issue forth in emotional, zealous children who are willing to put their arms around you but have no stability or foundation to keep them from falling away or to being misled and deceived by every wind of doctrine that the enemy throws out there. We need the truth to be stable. We need to understand doctrine in order not to be misled. In other words, the Lord joins these two, truth and love, together. They're not enemies. They're inseparable friends. For Ephesians 4.15 says we are to speak the truth in love. 
the truth, yes, and love. And likewise, in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Again, they're not separate. They are joined together. And as I said earlier, faithful creeds, confessions of faith, catechisms, directories, and covenants, when they are agreeable to the only infallible rule of faith and practice, namely scripture, those are helpful aids to our biblical unity. They summarize for us what distinctives, what truths we are in scripture to unite around as God's people. They promote a biblical unity. If we don't have, again, those standards that accurately summarize, faithfully summarize the teaching of scripture, everyone does basically what's right in his own eyes or her own eyes. If our creed is no creed but Christ, who is that going to bring into unity? Well, it's going to bring uh, Muslims. They believe in Christ. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, if our only creed is Christ, it's going to bring Jehovah Witnesses into unity with us. Uh, Mormons, uh, because they believe in Christ. Um, and they're allowed because they, there's no further definition uh, as to who Christ is other than to simply to say, I believe in Christ. If that's our only creed, then it's going to bring, again, uh, Roman Catholics, liberal uh, uh, Protestants. Uh, it's going to bring all of these people together. What kind of unity is that? Uh, you know, you, you might as well just pull, you know, um, 10 different people off the streets and say, come on in, we have unity. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you believe that Jesus uh, uh, lived, um, let's come in and, and just be united together. That's, that's not biblical unity. Uh, the Lord has given to us his truth and uh, we're to adhere to it. Or the same thing, uh, many say, no creed but the Bible. That's a, our only creed is the Bible. Okay, well, again, Jehovah Witnesses believe in the Bible. Um, Mormons believe in the Bible. Roman Catholics believe in the Bible. Um, even Muslims, uh, again, uh, will believe in many parts of the Bible uh, as well. You see, again, unless there are creeds and confessions of faith and catechisms that explain what the Bible means, simply to say no creed but the Bible is to allow a million, two million, a hundred million different versions of the Bible and what the Bible teaches, rather than rallying around, again, a common understanding of what the Bible teaches. And that's what confessions and creeds do for us. That was the purpose, historically, of the Solemn League and Covenant in, that uh, was sworn in 1643. We who are Reformed Presbyterians believe that that was a faithful covenant uh, made with God by the kingdoms and the churches of England, Ireland, and Scotland and their posterity. And in, they swore that they would, uh, in that covenant, that they would um, all agree upon one confession of faith, catechisms, directories for worship, and church government, and that covenant, that solemn leaking covenant would bind them before God 
to that? Well, there's, there is a biblical unity. There is agreement, again, upon um, biblical truths and doctrine and worship and church government. And I would submit to you that that covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, is yet the standard by which we, as Reformed Presbyterians, should pursue a scriptural unity uh, with other churches. We shouldn't cast that covenant behind us and say we're finished with that and we'll just go forth and, and we'll uh, come up with our own terms of unity. Uh, that is a covenant, I submit to you, by which we are bound and we should use that covenant in order to draw uh, other churches that hold the same terms of communion and unity, bind us together, and seek to, again, uh, rally around those truths that are, that are revealed in those standards. So what are we to think about division? As I, as I come near to the close of the study this evening, as I said, uh, we will have a, a, another study on this subject to get a little um, more information, dig a little deeper. But what are we to think about division? What are we to think about um, denominationalism uh, within Christ's visible church? Uh, is it a blessing, denominationalism? Uh, is it just a weakness that we should just simply overlook and no big deal? Or in God's eyes, is denominationalism a deplorable sin? What do we think about it? Well, I suggest to you, it doesn't matter what you think or I think. What does matter is what God thinks about it. What does he say about divisions over doctrine, worship, and government, church government? What does he say? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to practice. Well, first, let's just uh, consider that very, very briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25 says this. That there should be no schism, that is, a sinful division. That there should be no schism in the body, in the church of Jesus Christ, but that the members should have the same care one for another. No schism or division. And it's not simply talking about interpersonal relationships and conflicts. It's talking about any reason that would bring about a sinful division due to doctrine or worship or whatever, that's not acceptable, Paul's saying. Let there be none of, of that. Again, we had mentioned this earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.10. This is what Paul says with regard to these divisions. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He invokes Christ's name. Uh, he's saying, this is the teaching. This is the instruction. This is the will of Jesus Christ. If he invokes the name of Christ, as he does here, that's what he's using Christ's name for. That ye all speak the same Thing, that is, with regard to the truth, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Just go back a page, Romans 16, 17. There Paul says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Again, 
This is not simply accepting divisions and saying no big deal within the, the, the visible church of Jesus Christ. That's not God's will. That's not, that's not uh, uh, though we have a spiritual unity with all who are united to Christ, we are also to strive for a visible unity in one doctrine, in worship, in government, and in brotherly love. Now I'll have more to say about these matters. As I said, we'll dig a little deeper next Bible study. But let us first, I, as, as we close this evening, let us be absolutely certain about this truth. Let us be certain that denominationalism is contrary to the expressed will of God, for it promotes schism and division within Christ's visible church, not unity for which Jesus himself prayed. Let us be certain about that. However we, you know, again, wh where we go from that point, we can talk about in the next Bible study. But let us, at the end of this Bible study, be certain that when Paul and Barnabas had a falling out, whether to, uh, whether to take Mark, John Mark, with them, on the next missionary journey and, uh, and uh, to use him. And they disagreed over what to, to do. They didn't form two different churches. They didn't uh, uh, have two different denominations, the denomination of Paul and the denomination of Barnabas. There, there was one visible church in, in doctrine and worship. Um, God willing, they sorted all those things out, you know, the, the conflict that they had over that issue, but they did not divide the church because they were united in the same doctrine and worship and government of the church. So let us be sure that um, as we close the Bible study this evening, that it is not um, diversity in doctrine, latitudinarianism, multiformity, rather than uniformity that Jesus prayed for. He didn't pray for those things, that we, be, that we disagree with regard to the truth. Uh, the Lord is not schizophrenic with regard to the truth. Um, there is one truth. Errors that divide us uh, from other brethren in Christ's visible church are, are not because he has not revealed to us his truth. It's because of us. The sin lies within us. The fault lies within us. That we have not uh, rightly understood as Christ's visible church throughout the world what Jesus has revealed. We're not clinging to it as his visible church. So the fault lies with us, not with God. So let's stop there for this evening and God willing next Bible study we'll pursue this uh, a little, little further. Let's stand uh, as God's people. As Jesus prayed for uh, the visible unity that all the world would believe that the Father had sent the Son Lord, uh, so we likewise pray for that same visible unity. Not only that all Israel as a nation would be saved, not only that the fullness of the Gentile nations would be brought in, but we pray, even according to thy holy word, uh, that that time in the future would so manifest by thy spirit in overcoming these divisions, such a glorious time of gospel prosperity and, and understanding of thy truth, that thou would cause all of us as thy people uh, to uh, understand and to interpret and to uh, agree 
uh, together and to promote that, that it, will, that it might have such a glorious impact upon the world. Uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, Thou would show forth that unity, that we would pray for it, that we would earnestly de desire it, strive for it, even as, we, even as we do so within our own families, even as we desire to have that unity within our own families where we are, are agreeable uh, to Thy truth. Lord, may we strive to do so in Thy church. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.